Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is generously sponsored by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. We'd also like to welcome our newest sponsor, the Lumina Foundation. Thank you very much for your support. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And please, please rate us on iTunes. Yes, please rate us on iTunes. And if you have a fun story to tell, we'd love to hear that too. Now let's get to the show. Welcome to Let's Hear It. And our guest this week is Beth Cantor. Mm-hmm. And you interviewed I did. Beth. So I'm, I'm really proud that you're getting out of the house. Doing and doing my part. You're doing your part. You're, yep. you know, really, really painting that fence. <laughs> Tom Sawyer. So t- talk to me a little bit about Beth. Set this, set this interview up for me. I think the world of Beth Cantor. I really do. She's been in our field for, as she'll tell you, a long, long time. Right. She's been willing to take risks, talk about things for the first time when people would look at you and say, what are you talking about? Like blogs say. And what's what's interesting her reflect on her process, like when she describes herself now, it's networks, digital transformation and well-being for nonprofits. And her evolution as a person and a thinker, it's everything we want to be reflecting on in this podcast. And her own willingness to go on her own journey, frankly. It's her own process. She just keeps running into new stuff, and then she wants to figure it out, and then she shares it. And it works because, and I think it comes across in talking to her because she's got a willingness and a desire and a capability to share it. So that, that to me is Beth. And it was just, it was really fun to talk to her and she's an extremely busy person. She, you know, she mentions in the interview that she's just literally, we talked, she had just come off of something she did with the Gates foundation. And, but she's, you know, I email her, she emails, emails me back immediately. She's approachable. I just, I, I really, Beth is great. I really appreciate it. Well, great. It. Let's, let's have a listen. This is going to be exciting. So, hey, everybody, welcome in. We've got another edition of Let's Hear It, and I am so pleased to be joined this week by Beth Cantor. Beth, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me on Let's Hear It. We're so happy to have a chance to chat with you. Great. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be here. You self-describe you do networks, digital transformation, and well-being for nonprofits. You did some work back in the day with with Packard or, or sat in a seat there. Do I have that right? Am I remembering that? Uh, yes, I was visiting scholar at the David Lucille Packard Foundation from 2009 for about five years. It was only supposed to be a few months while I wrote my first book, but they kept on, they kept on inviting me to stay. <laughs> I always thought of you in the context of digital, social media, you know, new media communications. And now I feel like you've really, you've just grown into all these different dimensions in terms of how you think about your your work. And so I, I would just actually love to hear you reflect on that a little bit. What is your job? Could you tell us a little bit about <laughs> Beth Cantor? What do you do? Oh, that's such, I ask myself that question a lot, you know, and I seem to like, over, I, you know, I've been in the nonprofit sector over 35 years and every five years I kind of go through a transformation and I've always been lucky to follow my passion and what I want to learn. And that's become my job. And so of course, technology, nonprofit tech has been front and center of that. But 
you know, as I got into it, I, I think of now, I think of working in digital resilience. You know, I'm working with, you know, it started with social media, being an early adopter, and then, and then looking at networks. And then we all know around, if you're in technology and you want to be successful, you have to know about people and adopting the technology. And, and as, as social media and digital has kind of been zooming and zooming and zooming, and we're getting more information and we're finding out how different platforms are trying to, you know, suck us in, um, you know, we have to practice technology wellness and digital resilience. So, so it's connected to the technology, yes, but also it's the human piece of it. You know, what's between the, the keyboard and the chair? What does digital resilience mean? Can you tell me a little bit more about that? So when I use that applied to digital strategy, it's having a resilient strategy. So, and now on all the kinds of things that communicators talk about, knowing what your outcome is, knowing your audience, having empathy for your audience, being a great storyteller, having an efficient workflow, measuring it and learning and continuously improving it. So that to me, is a, a resilient digital strategy. And then the other half of it is is also if you're the hands-on person and you're using these technologies, for the matter of fact, everybody, because we're all using them now, is to learn digital wellness and, and good habits around that. Or else you get you know overwhelmed, <laughs> overloaded, stressed, and I don't think you can be as effective. I feel like I could use a I could use a weekend retreat just focused on digital wellness. <laughs> well. I did write a book called The Happy Healthy Nonprofit. It actually came out about when my father passed away about five years ago and going through the grief process and feeling really burned out. And I actually had went to see my doctor to get some tests done because I wasn't feeling great. And my cholesterol was like 300. (laughs) And yeah, so she's like, you're not taking care of yourself. And, you know, just go for a walk every day. Start there, you know, or or else you're going to be on Lipitor. So I started doing that. I bought a Fitbit. And I found myself over six months, not only walking every day, but I started walking five miles, 10 miles a day and watching what I was eating. And my cholesterol came into normal, but I felt better. Um, You know, I could write quicker. I felt less crabby, (laughs) especially my kids noticed that. Yeah. And, <laughs> and my fuse was a lot longer. And then I just realized that, you know, taking care of yourself and having a good sense of well-being is just as important as actually doing the work and sending out the perfect tweet or having the perfect uh, strategy or plan. And that's like, that was the genesis of the book, that it's that it's part of doing the work we do. What was the inclination that got you into all this? Okay, I was in college a really long time ago, over 35 years ago, and I was a um, classical flute major in music school. Great. Right? And so um, I don't know if you know anything about the classical um, music world, but I do not. The, the job prospects aren't that great, especially, yeah, especially for flute, because there's not that many positions in the orchestra. And and when you show up for an audition, there's like 500 others or a thousand other people yeah. who, you know, who, who are all probably better than you you are. So I realized that I wasn't going to sit first chair in a symphony orchestra. And so I, actually my, my flute teacher, God bless him, the second flutist of the New York Philharmonic, he made some offhanded comment to me like, you know, you're really good about how you're so organized with your time and keeping track of what you practice. Why don't you um, look at the business aspect of the orchestra? So he introduced me to the, uh, the general manager there. And I went in, you know, at age 22 or whatever and said, um, I want to be a general manager of a major symphony orchestra. What do I need to learn how to do? What degree do I need? 
And at that time, there weren't arts administration or nonprofit degrees. And he told me that I should learn how to type. (laughs) (laughs) And and so I so I took my metronome and my piano skills and I learned how to type accurately really, really fast. And I got a job in the Boston Symphony um, in the development office. And I learned every aspect of the development office from capital campaigns, annual campaigns, donor cultivation, donor research, you know, all of that. It was a, it was a great education. So I got, I say I got my um, nonprofit master's degree in the street. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of Best Blog and how it's evolved for you? <laughs> okay. So in 2000, I came across what later became Blogger. It was then bought up by Google. Um, and at the time I had been, for the last 10 years, I'd been at the New York a foundation for the arts. And I've been training artists and arts organizations to build websites. And the the blogger platform to me was so amazing because, oh, anybody, you don't have to build a website. You can just start producing content. This is 2000. So I had these little attempts at, at a blog and it was in 2003 that TypePad came out, which allowed you to easily uh, create a nice looking blog. And I was using it literally just as a training notebook, I was writing these notes up based on like, I I was doing a training, what did I learn from the training, or I was going on site, in those days, I was a circuit rider. So I was running around crawling under desks, plugging in networks, or building someone's database or whatever. And I would just use it to, oh, okay, I learned how to do this. Here are my notes. And I I was doing that. And I was also doing it because I I had adopted two kids from Cambodia. And I was also writing about Cambodia. So the first comment on my blog was from a blogger in Cambodia. (laughs) And I'm like, what? (laughs) And, and that led to this relationship. And in 2007, I sponsored the Cambodian bloggers conference, they brought me over. And what happened was I, I was just doing this because I just needed a place to write down my thoughts of what I was learning. And then I, I didn't even look at the subscription, how many people were subscribing. I had no idea. And then I opened it up and said, oh my God, people are subscribing to this. And, and people were saying that this is what we want. You're helping, you're helping me save all this time because you're sharing your mistakes and what you learn. So that's how I got started. And then I became kind of, I've always, it's always yeah, been for me. Right. <laughs> you know, I just, I need a place to reflect. I need a place to capture my learning. And it's actually proved quite helpful now because I can go back to things that I was thinking about like 10 years ago yeah. professionally and and see how it's evolved or I'm not starting from scratch and it's helped me remember things and learn better. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, I did a quick search for you on YouTube and, you know, I find you at Google talking about one of your books. I find you at South by Southwest. I find you doing a TEDx talk, but there's also a video that comes fairly early from August 22, 2008, and it's you giving a presentation called, called Using Social Media for Good Causes. Uh, Chris Perillo put it up. And I just thought that was, I was like, man, that's 2008. That's 11 years ago. That feels like such a long time ago now that this whole concept of social media for good causes was first kind of being discussed. And actually in that video, you talk about doing the blogger conference in Cambodia, I think. Didn't you end up self-funding that entire conference somehow? Or what? Yeah. Yeah. And that um, session, actually, I, I loved that session because in the, uh, Chris Perillo, I don't know if you know, uh, remember Gnome Decks. So it was like a technology influencers boutique kind of conference, a small version of South by Southwest in Seattle. So like the biggest names in social media were there and, you know, and he asked me to present. And I had just actually, and I told a story about raising scholarship money for a young woman in Cambodia and how I did that. And then I did this experiment. I set up another campaign and there were 300 
influencers in the room and I challenged them. I said, in five minutes, I bet you if all of you reach out to your friends and ask them to give $10, we can raise collectively in this room, you know, over $3,000 in five minutes. I dare you. And we did it. How much of, of what you work on today is, is in that world of how do we deploy social media as, a, as one tactic versus any other? Some of my portfolio, yes, but it's changed. I'm less doing the tactical stuff and it's more, I do a lot of advising and delivering of either online masterclasses or masterclasses in person on that topic. And it's really at the strategy level. I bring other people in who talk more about the techniques, but understanding, you know, all the things we talk about in communication. So it's not like a social media strategy. It's how it's like making your fundraising strategy social or making your communication strategy uh, social. So I do have a piece of that. I am working right now. I just finished facilitating the, the Greater Giving Summit hosted by the Gates Foundation. So I, I do a lot of work in that program, which is, you know, how do we expand giving by the everyday donor? So it's working with a lot of platforms. And I'm also just beginning some research with Allison Fine, who was my co-author for the network nonprofit. And we're looking at the potential for AI to scale generosity, which I think might be my next book. In 2010, does the book writing start with the network nonprofit or what did you learn actually doing that work or, or how have you continued to build on it as you've gone forward? I mean, and, and this relates back to my whole work in nonprofit tech, which started like 25 years ago. I mean, I, that's when I discovered the internet. And I thought it was so amazing. And there, there weren't any nonprofits on it. Nobody had websites. They didn't even have IT or computers. And that's how I got started with this kind of evangelism around you know, nonprofits need to discover the power of technology and use it for mission-driven work. And so, and so I guess my career reflection has been I'm sort of discovering something kind of related to technology. It's always early on and then kind of learning from the techs and translating it to the nonprofit world and encouraging people to take it up. Because when Allison and I were working on the network nonprofit. And when I was blogging, I remember running around and saying, you need to, <laughs> you need to start a blog. A what? <laughs> you need a yeah, website. Right. A what? You need to be on the World Wide Web. The what? <laughs> you need email. What? <laughs> and, and really trying to show people the value of it and then the best practices of using it and adopting it. How, how much pushback did you get around measurement? Were, were, did, were people inclined to say, yep, let's measure, let's, let's no. try to evaluate impact. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, well, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I used to say, you know, the, the, the five stages of measurement acceptance, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> first is denial, you know, uh, we yeah, right. <laughs> Why? Yeah, and then the right. next fear. I don't know math. <laughs> oh, they're going to tell me it's terrible. Oh my god! I and, love then, it. and then comes I forget what was the next. Oh, uh, measurement. Of, oh, oh, data, data, data. Falling in love with data, but not being, but not really applying it to anything. And then accepting that yes, measurement is really useful and it's continuous improvement, and I can use it to learn. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> and um, myself, one of the reasons why I wanted to write that book was there was so much early on about social media. You can't measure it. There's not results. And what's the ROI? And I did a session at, and maybe you saw this in your search. It was called the social media nonprofit measurement. And, <laughs> and everybody delivered in, in rhyming verse. And I invited, uh, the judge was Katie Payne, who is a guru expert, the queen of measurement. 
in the nonprofit in the for-profit world. So she was my judge, and I had three or four nonprofit folks who put out with me asking them, "Do your presentation in verse, please, and pick a theme." And they did it, and she gave her feedback in rhyming quintuplets. And, oh, no. <laughs> and she wore a tiara, no. and um, and I turned to her and I said, "You know, we should write a book together because I flunked math in high school, and I'm oh, terrified so. of data and anything that has to do with numbers." And she said, no, you don't need to be terrified. And so part of the reason of wanting to write the book is I really wanted to be able to do this and get over my fear of it. And as I started researching and talking to nonprofits, I thought, no, I'm not alone here. <laughs> That's part of it. It was just such a, it was such a new idea six or seven years ago, like measuring social media. I feel like one of the challenges every organization always has is where do you find the time to do all this stuff, right? So like me in my personal life, where do I find the time to take care of myself? In my organizational life, where do I find the time to be accountable to all this and even process this information? How do you help organizations bridge that? Because I feel like that's always one of the hardest parts about doing strategy work in the organizational context is just people having the time to just stop and think and reflect, let alone carry any of this forward into their work. It's, well, getting past the fears, right? And showing, initially showing some easy, simple baby steps to do it. And then it's training the cycle. When I wrote my um, most recent book, I did a lot of research into habit change. Um, and right down the road from me is Stanford University, and we have um, BJ Fogg. And he has this um, theory called tiny habits. I, I don't know if you're familiar with it. I'm not. Well, if you want people to change or develop a new habit, it has to be tiny. And you have to find the time in your routine to do it. And then it's training the cycle and not stopping after, oh, I didn't I didn't lose the, the five pounds, so I'm going to go eat <laughs> cake or whatever. It's okay, well, maybe like maybe you didn't make that small enough. Maybe you just need to lose a half a pound, you know? And how are you and how are you going to remind yourself what in your existing routine to start to change this new behavior in a small kind of way? And then you train that cycle and you make it consistent. So I've applied that to my coaching and my my practice with, with introducing new habits, if you will, to organizations or to individuals, and we start them small. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications, hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is made possible through the generous support of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation and the Lumina Foundation. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. If you're enjoying the show, please rate us on iTunes so more people can find us. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. The measuring the network nonprofit, that's 2012. And then in a few years later, you follow that up with the Emerging Nonprofit Leaders Playbook. Those shifts that you talked about in your own career, this feels like another one of those shifts, and I'm wondering if it was or not. Um, so that was kind of also happening, fomating the same time around well-being. When I was talking about this and I'm hearing a lot about from younger leaders about how we're working in these organizations that are just toxic, toxic culture, workaholics, and I want to change it. Well, you might not be able to change it, but I don't know how. And then this also, having been a trainer, that's the thing I do for the last 30 years, teaching, training, facilitating. You know, I noticed that, you know, younger people kind of are more into like micro learning. Like they don't have the time to go out and go to a leadership class and or for months and months. And the organization probably doesn't have the resources to send them. And if you're out, 
you know, for a couple of days at a, at a, a workshop or something, you know, you're stressing out because, oh, my email's piling up and all this work I'm missing and I'm going to be stressed. Um, so this was an idea around, so how can we teach these leadership skills that are about like changing organizational culture, taking care of yourself, and then also effective collaboration on your team, but you do it as part of doing the work. So it's basically a recipe book. Like you want to, you want to know how to do better meetings. Okay. So here's a couple of rest plays out of the playbook that you can actually put to practice when you're having a meeting with your team to improve your meeting or, <laughs> or here's a couple of, you know, I want to not be so overwhelmed when I'm doing, when I'm doing my work email or whatever. So here's a couple of plays that you can try, or I want to change some shifts, try to shift some things in my organizational culture. So here's some tools and processes around that. And so it was really cool because we have the book, but we also through Packard had a group of their grantees that went through a training. And so we had the younger leader and then um, they had a mentor within their organization. And we went through, I don't know, a year, a year training where they were putting these things into practice. Talk a little bit about then your progression to getting into the healthy, the happy, healthy nonprofit, because I just, I, this whole series of book titles, I'm just like, man, this is a really interesting journey that's been on these past few <laughs> well, years. Okay. So the happy, healthy, uh, my co-author is Elisa Sherman. Uh, so, so, okay. So there was the, the burnout piece and learning self-care and the walking, and then also realizing that, you know, hearing a lot about, well, you can take care of yourself, but if you're going into an organization where it's a really dysfunctional, toxic culture, no matter how much self-care you practice, it's not going to do any good because it's a good part of your life is going into this dysfunctional environment. You know, if people aren't treating each other with respect, if they, if people don't feel appreciated, if, if you don't have enough basic things to function, or if you don't have ways to feel, be fulfilled or linked back to the mission. So, so realize that the book can't just be about like, this is how you practice self-care and how to avoid burnout. It really has to be, how do you create and activate a culture of well-being? So there was a lot of interviewing and trying to find organizations that did this and did it well, and then looking at um, different frameworks and trying to go like beyond just, you know, yoga in the conference room or yeah. meditating, or let's have, you know, kale smoothies yeah. <laughs> on Tuesdays, whatever. Because that's just, yeah. that doesn't work because it's really about culture and your values around that. So, um, one of the most interesting frameworks we found, and I use it a lot now when I do a lot of staff retreats and training around this, it's called the five F's. Huh. And they're all F words you can say. Um, you don't have to bleep me. Um, but it, it, it follows Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So at the bottom, it's functioning. Do people have what they need to function? Do they Are there staples in the stapler? You know. Then the next level up is friendship. Do people get along? Do they actually like each other? The next level up is feelings. How does it feel to work there? Do people feel appreciated? The next level up is fulfillment, per- personal growth, but also professional growth and skill building. And then finally, connected to the mission or fulfillment. The second one was forward. Sorry, forward, then fulfillment. And so instead of doing like a survey that says, would you like to have yoga on, would you like this? Or, you know, would you like a gym membership? It's really having a conversation in the organization about these five F's and then coming up with pilots that you can begin to experiment to start to shift the culture. And I have lots and lots of examples that are in the book that are some of them fun some of the, and none of them really cost a lot. They're simple, simple tweaks. So it feels like to me, you've been doing a lot of collaboration throughout your entire career. It's also another theme that we're hearing people talk about that collaboration, it feels like is almost always a really crucial ingredient, but is almost always harder to accomplish than we might 
think? Or do you have to actually put some tools in practice even around your own work there so that your collaborations can be effective? I find it easy because I've been, I've been a solo practitioner uh, since 1984. So, and I've always, I've always collaborated. I'm not inside of an organization. I think if you're an organization, you have, it's harder, but if you're, if you're a freewheeler like me, and I'm, I'm very interested in learning what are other people's collaboration styles. Like I don't want to force them to collaborate in the way that I collaborate. So when I do a new project, when I start a project, we discuss a couple of things. First, you know, what are some of our norms around tools and work processes? What feels comfortable? And I build those. And every agenda, there's like a note saying, how are we doing on uh, using these Google Docs? You know, is there something that the way we're working on this... Um, it's usually around the tools that's annoying, or it seems to be a time waste, or, hey, you know, we made this commitment, we're not going to use email, we're going to use Slack, but I see a few of us are like still emailing. Is that just that we're forgetting, you know, or, and then have a conversation about, oh, I'm afraid I'm going to be so overwhelmed with Slack, so I'm not using it. And I said, well, let's just give it a try. So we go through and we try to establish norms. Uh, One exercise that I do, one tool I use is what's your owner's manual? So it's kind of like, this is the way I like to collaborate. These are the things I, uh, ways I don't, this is, you know, these are my strengths. These are my weaknesses. And we have this kind of conversation. I have a fun process with Steve. Notes that we do, oh, and that's great. we have that, and then we also I do a lot of the the racy chart. It's um, who's responsible, accountable, who just needs to be cons- consulted or informed, and yeah. I break out the the project workflow tasks. We kind of agree on that because I think a lot of things. With collaboration, you're not sure, oh, who do I need to get sign off from? And you're afraid to make a mistake or, you know, or somebody else is trying, is really responsible for it, but there's all these, these other pieces that they need to get. And that's where I think bottlenecks happen. So if you can go into it up front, kind of clarify that. And then also while you're in it, reflect along the way, it gets at, it gets any of the projections that we bring to it. Oh, that person doesn't like me because they're ignoring me on their email or whatever. That gets in the way of doing the work. Well, so and you're making an explicit and spending time talking about it instead of expecting it to be an intuitive thing that everybody just knows how to do. Right. You don't make assumptions. As I know we're getting on time here a little bit, but there one of the things I just wanted to ask you about too is um your own capacity to use these tools be it digital technology, be it your ability to balance your own wellness in your life, has just really been a model. And it's funny, I mean, even um, search engine optimization, like when I do a, a Google search on Beth Cantor, and it's interesting, I would I would recommend every organization almost use this as a litmus test, do a Google search on Beth Cantor, see what comes up, and then do a Google, Google search on your own organization and compare the pages. You know, because when I, I do a Google search on Beth Cantor, literally every item on that on my first page from that search that comes up relates to you directly you know and it's your web page and your blog first and later on in the page i've got your amazon link you know to where your books are for sale and i'm just curious about that part of your work like you've clearly done this really well for yourself just like you're talking about collaboration my guess is that this is not just magic fairy dust that has caused all this to happen but you've actually put some real thought into it and you've got real intention behind it are are there some ideas or some tips that other organizations could pick up from your experience there in in applying their own work because again it's just it's one of my favorite things beth about how you work is that you're just really thorough and good at how you basically apply your own your own lessons i would say 
eat my own dog food. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You like you like the meal so well, you're going to sit down and you're going to eat it yourself. That's right. Yeah, because it's an excellent meal, right? Yeah, it's 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 very well prepared. Well, you know, there's a funny there was a funny thing about uh, search engine optimization. It's not something. It's not it's not something that's in my bag of tricks in terms of digital. Like if you know, and if I was working on a big thing, I would bring somebody out. There's specialists in that. I think social media has really helped in getting into it early. And and the joke, I, I remember actually googling myself for the first time. 10 years ago, just to see, I, w- I was always Googling myself just to see, I wanted to see what my digital footprint was and I wanted to see what would show up. I wanted to look at it in terms of, oh, somebody doesn't know me, but what are they seeing when this comes up? And then I Googled the word Beth and I still, I came up second after Kiss Beth. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? <laughs> <laughs> I would, or at first I, would, I, beat, I beat it, but then they, they, um, band actually put up a YouTube channel and now they're second. <laughs> you know, social media definitely helped it. And also having a lot of people linked to me really helped as well. And, um, and that came about early on because I was a member of the blog her community. And one of the things that we did, we used to have on the side of your blog, there used to be the blog list. This is like 12 years ago yeah, and that you would yeah. link to other bloggers because bloggers would always collaborate and link to each other. So 500 people at the first blog her conference agreed that we'd all link to each other blog roles. It was called blog roles. And all of a sudden women bloggers, you know, had better search engine optimization. So getting a lot of link, I know there's a lot of technical things you can do about where you put what words you do use in your headlines, you know, what you put in your HTML. Getting a lot of links is really good too. Well, and you know, and I look at your presence on Twitter and I see 360,000 Twitter followers for Beth Cantor. Tell me about that. I mean, A, how does that feel? B, how'd you build it? And then and, and C, like, as you're tweeting, does that actually change your feeling and your sensibility for even how you're using Twitter as a tool? Or does this just feel like a really authentic expression of your work? And so it might be one follower, it might be a million followers. It's all kind of the same. I mean, how, do, how does that whole world evolve for you as, as that number of followers grows? I think if you're there first, there's some advantages. Mm. And I got, um, Twitter was started, I want to say April of 2006. And I got on June of 2006. <laughs> so I was like, like a super early adopter. And I knew all the other people on there. And we had this nice little community going. And so when I used to talk about Twitter in 2006, and people would say, what is that? Is that where you talk about what your cat ate? First, they said what? And then it was, oh, that's where you, you talk about what your cat ate. That's stupid. 140 characters. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Uh, I don't want to do that. You know, that was early. And then, you know, it became more adopted and people started getting on it. And other nonprofits go, well, who am I going to follow? <laughs> I was there and I already had a following. And so my following really evolved because I was one of the first. I'd say, how does it change me? You know, I, I am a little careful about tweeting where I am in live time if I'm alone. You know, uh, who knows? No, no axe murderers have showed up on my doorstep. Well, man, Beth, it's just so cool to hear about everything you're doing. You know, I always like to play this game. You know, if you were the head of all foundations for a day, I'd be curious what you would do. Is is there something that you wish you could wave a, a magic wand and, and make happen? Hmm, that's a great question. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of risk adversity, I think, in certain foundations. And I understand that. And I, you know, you don't want to bet the farm. But I, I always wish that, 
foundations would have us be able to place some small bets with a small portion of their portfolio and without understanding that there might be some learning, even though it wouldn't be a grand central project you know, that would emerge from it. And I also wish that um, some foundations would they invest a lot in the, the results of work outcomes. And of course, those are super important. Absolutely. Um, but I'd also wish that foundations would also invest in how the work is getting done you know, the culture, the values, you know, the processes as well. I think both are important. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Those are both themes that have come up in other conversations too. I, it's funny. I almost wish that we had a, almost like a, a shared fund or something called the random fund. And it would be, it would be entirely designed to do that small scale, but, you know, really kind of different, but interesting, risky, who knows what's going to happen from this kind of investing and uh, no single foundation would have to take on the responsibility of supporting all of it, but you know, maybe everybody could learn from it. And and then lastly, what are you hopeful about? What uh what makes you hopeful? What are you seeing that that actually is getting you excited? <laughs> that's a hard yes, question. I um, know. I know that's why I ask it. Yeah, we gotta keep we gotta we gotta remain hopeful and we we have to like focus on the stuff that is good because there's certainly a lot of bad stuff going on. What gives me hope when I take a walk, gives me some endorphins. Also like when I hear about or read about people doing good things, you know, people are, are good. Like things that come out of like all the stories around giving Tuesday and acts of kindness and people raising money for other people. That makes me, gives me a lot of hope. Well, and I got to say, Beth, talking to people like you gives me hope. I mean, seriously, thank you for all of the work you've done for all these years. I had this question here and I, I don't think it's answerable, but I wonder how many people you've trained. You know, I wonder how many people you've touched with your work. And, and I think it's beyond measure. No, I'm just going to say, stay tuned. Um, you know, I, I, I'm just about in the midst of another transformation. I'm looking at the future of, you know, the next disruptive technology, but I really want to explore what, what it means for generosity and giving. And so if there's anyone who's working on something out there who's listening, please do reach out. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. Please turn AI to good. Uh, leverage it for good, Beth. We'll certainly, uh, we'll certainly benefit from that. Beth Cantor, thank you so much for joining us on Let's Hear It. Okay, we're back with Kirk Brown. There are so many ways to go with this. Yeah. I guess maybe my first question for you is what did you think about her ability to be at the head, just ahead of the, I don't know if you want to call it head of the curve. It is. It's ahead of the curve. Yeah. Uh, on, on so many different things. It's what we need. I mean, this is what we keep talking about. You said, Eric Brown on this podcast said. I deny it. You, Whatever you, you said, say I said is a lie. The jobs that people coming into this field today are going to have to do within five years don't even exist. Yet. Okay, I said that. You said that. I did say and that. And so You're what right. is Beth working on right now? And I want to make sure we didn't miss this Was because. She, AI. As it relates to charitable giving. That's freaking me out. It's blowing our heads open. So and this is the thing. Like we want to pigeonhole people. So it's funny because I even wrestled with this in the podcast. I'm like I went back and looked at one of her first – you know, one of her first talks about mm -hmm. social media for good. And I still think of Beth as the social media for good person. And one of the reasons I wanted to go through her just series of books and what she's written right. is because as we know, every time you write – You've done a lot of thinking, a lot of research. You've got to put all your ideas yeah. together. It's something that scares the crap out of me. I love that we've got people that are writing coming on this podcast. 
But her willingness to go through that journey, that evolution, it, I actually think it's funny. Again, we're talking about not trying to analyze our guests, but she's a model for what our field has to do. Okay, you're starting to say that every every show. Like, I, I'm not going to analyze my guests, but I'm really going to analyze But we have to. We've got to analyze our guests. Well, it's so hard to try, keep the line, but Beth is a model for what our field has to do, which is to yeah. keep on adapting, keep on really investing in that inquiry, that spirit of inquiry. And then what I like about what Beth does, and again, I have a lot of... Um, I have a lot of respect for her doing this basically as a sole practitioner for all these years is, is to, is to find ways to put it out there in a meaningful way. Yeah, it's, it's true. And you're right. She was there at the beginning, just trying things, which is so important. Yeah. Um, The thing with Beth is that everything she's tried has succeeded and she's on her fourth, fifth book. (laughs) She just keeps writing these books. I'm, I'm still. It's like Pixar and movies. (laughs) It's unbelievable. No, no, no. I'm, I'm not making this up. I have a thank you note that I have been meaning to write to a friend who invited us for dinner and it's been sitting on my dining room table for two months. I can't even write a thank you note. Right, right, right. And Beth is on her fifth book. Yeah. Well, and as we've seen, just playing with this little podcast, right? Like this is just a fun thing. It's a little hobby that we're doing. It takes a lot of effort, right? It takes real work and real discipline. Well, okay. So, so Got me there. Beth's willingness, and I think, again, this is why it's kind of a model for the field, the willingness to put the time in to get the output out. And by the way, what are one of the results? What are the one of the indicators? We talk about how you count and how you measure. Well, I don't know. Beth has 360,000 Twitter followers. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever looked at my Twitter portfolio. It's some oh, you, fraction of that number. You, you know? have almost that many. Yeah, Kirk. almost right. I'm in that directionally, that direction. Yeah, all Russian bots. But still, <laughs> that's right. They love that's you. Right. That's right. You talk to her about this progression and about how she learns from her own personal experience. Yeah. Can you analyze? You know, analyze a little bit about how we can use what she has learned yeah. in our work and in our field. Yeah. And yeah. I'm not just talking about you and me as right. a couple of dudes, but yeah. but how in our field we we can take those lessons and apply it to our organization, whether it's a nonprofit or a foundation. Yeah. So what I like about my take on the journey is we see how all the ideas have to connect and relate to each other. You know, early on doing communications work, one of the big things, like it was a huge lift and this is such an old thing. This is almost, even to say this, you have to say it in black and white. It's like, you're just not going to do a press conference. You have to be so much more thoughtful about right. that. And you start pulling on that thread and ultimately you touch every part of an organizational's fabric to really, as you pointed out in, in other contexts, to really get the communications mindset right. right. Now you're touching every part of organizational strategy. So what I think is interesting about her own journey is you start out with thinking about how to operate more effectively in a, in a connected world. That's the network to nonprofit. When that stuff, and again, that's 2010, so that's a million years right. ago, yeah. right? That's, Almost 10 years ago, it's, you know. Yeah, yeah, Noah that's was right. building that's his right. ark. That's right. So this was a brand new notion that, oh my God, we're all going to be connected in so many ways. And and that starts touching on all the transparency, all of the how do you right. work plan for this. So of course that brings you into measurement. And one of my favorite moments in talking to her, <laughs> how did it go when you introduced measurement and you just start laughing? <laughs> Not so good. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But, you know, that's – and again, this is 2012. This is six or seven years ago, right? right? You know, we're not going to say things are so fundamentally different. But then at the same time in, and how that rolls into, wait, now to get all this stuff together, you have to start thinking about wellness. And she keys into this notion of what what it is to be a, a digitally yeah. wellness. That's really interesting. I have to say oh. that it, it is true though. 
isn't it? All of these ideas are connected. Right. Right. So, so you start from, we're going to think about ourselves in this new networked way where we're all, and now we're like, oh, wait, just a few years, few years later. Oh, let's not go crazy being so networked that we're, we don't even know what right. to do. Right. And so then that brings her, I think, in an interesting way, full circle to this whole notion of, well, what is actually a happy, healthy nonprofit? Right. And she starts talking about her own, you know, journey there, by the way, of, of balancing her own personal wellness right. in her life with, you know, how she's approaching her work. So again, as, as is so often the case, we see that you can't just do one of these things at a time. You've got to actually, you know, work with them in concert. And to me, that's actually been what's, what's interesting about her journey. And I believe it all relates to communications, by the way. Yeah. Well, it's also, well, certainly a message for the day because you, you can be as brilliant as you are you know you can be the most brilliant person in the world if you run a toxic organization yeah it won't function and you'll probably go down too i mean just (sighs) pick up honestly you could pick up any day's newspaper and you see another so-called brilliant leader who has torched their organization and who has you know and the people and the lives that you take with it but also the effect that that has on the people who work for you or with you yeah is immeasurably bad. Well, and you know, it's funny because it's definitely been a choice I found myself making even in our conversations because you can go down that rabbit hole of just pushing on the bad and you can spend your entire life there because we have so many illustrations and it's in our work every single day. And so to have people like Beth and then just our conversations and hearing who's coming on the, on the show, really talking about the other side of that, which is like, how do you do it right? How do you do it well? And coming at that from a very authentic place is, and, and so again, back to Beth and what I really value about our work too. And frankly, this is, again, I think fundamentally it's about communications, but I think for her, it's just who she is. It's the authenticity that Mm -hmm. comes with it too. You know, so when she's going through these, what she calls what personal transformations or whatever, it's, it's actually a real authentic process that she's going through. She's going through a birthing process for her and her own work. And, and I think again, institutionally and personally, we're actually all doing that all the time. What I think she's really good at though is naming it. So one of the things I, I asked her about was collaboration. Right. And how she addresses. Yeah. And I was like, what a cool idea. Start your, start your projects by talking about how you collaborate. Right. And That's what, right. What, I totally agree. So let me, here, I'll put you on the spot. This is yeah. fun. Uh, it, <laughs> <laughs> um, what are you, uh, so what are you going to do? How are you, what are you going to take away from that conversation with Beth that you might do a little differently now uh, in your own work? Okay. So one of the nice things about this is that we um, don't have to cop to when this was recorded and when it was done. Right. But I can tell you that since we had that uh, interview, I've been getting out of my office and walking almost every day. Really? Yes. Huh. I'm not kidding about that. And, and, it, and it was funny. I was like, you know, this is the stuff we never talk about. Right. Like we have this laser sharp focus on what I'm going to air quotes. You don't see my big fat air quotes, you know, the work. And when we focus on the work that way, we clad out all of these other factors that as we learn are fundamental to doing the work and doing it well. And she talks about her own process there when she started making that choice, how many things changed in her work. Right. I've seen the exact same uh, thing. No kidding. It, we, we well, have, for one thing, I can't get you on the phone. <laughs> that's right, because I'm just out walking around. But Could you please just come back to your office we've been, there? We have been going through one of the highest pressure but highest impact stretches we've ever gone through. We have just cool stuff happening everywhere. Uh, and At Reach Strategies, uh, your, your firm. My, and, 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 and so – I won't say you can, but, but it, um, well, you were building an empire. <laughs> I am not, but we're just doing great work. For EV but vehicles, right? I'm not, Electric vehicles. Stop, stop. But, but what I'm saying, <laughs> what I'm this saying is, is that, is that these other skills have to accompany the others. I used to not know that. I only used to know mm-hmm. how to work 
Like literally in the past few weeks, I've been up at one thirty in the morning writing proposals. This is true. Mm-hmm. It's happened. We're in one of those phases. But you have those little balancing things you do then. It's like – it's kind of like, you know, Kristen's journey into the, you know, hinterlands. That's and right. The camper every and the year, camper, right? right. So that yeah, – I'll tell you, that's one that's one material thing that, that, I, that I came out came, – came away from those conversations with. And I was like, you know what, Beth? I love that you said that and I'm going to try to act on that. Yeah. And it makes a difference. Since you asked um, – <laughs> <laughs> I, what I would say is that I really do admire somebody who is willing to to shift and mm. not to just sit on her social media credentials <sighs> yeah. and to shift and to look at how do organizations work well and what does it take to be effective in your job or what does it take to be effective as a person so that you can be effective in your job. I think that's so important and so admirable. It's nominally not a communications thing, but she's a communications expert who understands that there's just a lot more to it than all that. Right. And that's important too. And then she's willing to take the time to write about it, yeah. which I'm God, I would love, love to be able to, to have that write kind of your book, write your book. I'm telling you, this is one of the things. So can I, <laughs> can I say the one thing that I didn't ask about? And I, I feel like we should have an episode on this topic. She did her talk over a decade ago about using social media for good. And when I was doing my notes for the conversation, I was like, oh, I want to ask her if she thought somebody listened to her presentation and then sometime after the Arab Spring wrote up that using social media for bad huh. platform. Oh, because, yeah, yeah. Because we're swimming in the consequences, I think, in part yeah. today in our politics, uh, in our in our society of social media being used for what we would consider to be bad. Right. And so that's one thing we didn't get into. But then – then an, which I would love us to do at some point on this podcast. But then the two things I'm realizing have proven to be really difficult questions for people – and, I'm, and I want to keep asking them, though I almost think we sh- I should stop. One is if you were foundation head of the world for a day, what would you fund? Right. It's been amazing how difficult it's been for people to answer that question. It's a, it's a hard question. Also, what are you hopeful about? Yeah. People miss a beat there. And, and I actually think that that question is so crucial for us to keep asking about yes. it yeah. and talking about it. Because, again, back to the healthy – happy, happy, healthy nonprofit, the happy, healthy professional, the better balanced and adjusted person. If we just go deep on these headlines and head to the bottom, I don't think that's where our solution. Oh, right. I totally at. agree. Right? I, 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 yeah, I think it's a good, that's a, that's a great thing to leave to end this, this conversation with, but I will also say stay tuned because I had a conversation with a foundation executive and we finished the interview with that question oh. and it was very exciting. So I'm not going to tell you who it is. Uh-huh. I just gonna have, you have, you can have to wait, awesome. but it was, I, I totally agree with you. And that while we are not, the goal is not to engage in happy talk. Yeah. Fair. It's not. Fair. And, and I don't think we do that, but the, the goal is to actually figure out what is it going to take in order to be able to succeed. And yeah. I think that, understanding your what gives you hope is really really important crucial crucial well thank you for that great interview thank for thank you for this conversation and thank you to our our listeners for tuning in and we will see you next time 
Okay, everybody, that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on the show, and that includes yourself. And we'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator, Sarah Morgan, our tireless social and digital media maven, John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music, Ben Rockwood, our brilliant partner behind the production curtain, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the Lumina Foundation for their incredibly generous support. Thank you, thank you. And we certainly thank our guests and, of course, all of you. And thank you, Mr. Brown. (laughs) No, no, no. Thank you, Mr. Brown. (laughs) Till next time. Let's hear it. Thank you.